Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is Academy Award-winning documentarian Fisher Stevens. Fisher is not only a documentarian, he's also an actor, a director, a producer, and most importantly, an activist. You remember him from projects like Short Circuit, The Night Of, Vice Principals, Succession, and other films like Before the Flood, which he did with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is one of the most important climate change films in the last 10 years. Our conversation spans so many of his projects. Here it is. Fisher Stevens, how you doing? Good. Thanks for being here, man. It means a lot to me. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, before we begin, my executive producer, Dino Evans, would like to say a few words because I know you guys have a rich history together. So I knew Dean in diapers. <laughs> Dino. I, I met this wonderful man on the set of the Flamingo Kid movie shot in the early 80s. It was a Gary Marshall film starring one of my best friends, Leon Robinson. Um, I met Matt Dillon, Marissa Tomei. Richard Crana, it was an amazing experience meeting Fisher and being on the set. But as you know, Fisher is an actor, producer, director, writer, disruptor, environmentalist, Academy Award winning documentarian from the um, Cove documentary. And um, Fisher, we're just so happy to have you here. Keep on doing what you do. And Ryan, let's get this show started. Thanks, Dino. Hell of an intro. Yeah. So Fisher, I've, I've watched all your films and, and I'm so grateful for what you do both as a, as a humanitarian and as an activist and your acting work, everything. It's, it's been really, I mean, it's such a, a rich history of work. And before we dig in though, I, I like to start at the beginning. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah. I lived in a few different parts of Chicago. Um, kind of had a typical suburban life till I was about nine years old. And then, uh, things went into flux. Personally, with my family, my dad and mom, and ended up in New York City, partially Connecticut, and then back to Chicago. And then I kind of settled in New York City's meatpacking district um, when I was just turned 13 years old. Wow. Uh, in a loft over a gold plating factory that was part of the gold plating factory, in, uh, yeah, w- which now is. I don't even want to know how much that loft is worth. My mom bought it for $38,000 in 1976. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my 5, God. 5,000 square feet in the meatpacking. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so then you spent the rest of your time in New York growing Basically, up here? Basically, yeah. I, I, um, I kept a place in New York, Mom, since I was you know that age and um, tried to live in L.A. a few times. You know, Worked certainly a lot in L.A., um, worked a lot in Europe. But always kept a home in New York, and now I have a. I live in Brooklyn. And did you get started in uh, at, like acting at a young age? Was that something your parents encouraged you to do? Um, well, my dad for sure not. Uh, he stayed in Chicago. My mom um, uh, bought this loft, but there were a lot of expenses and couldn't afford it, so she rented it to an acting school. And her boyfriend at the time was a out of work actor waiter, and at night sometimes. Because I didn't want to stay home, I would go with him to his acting classes. He was, I was thirteen, fourteen years old, and um, the acting teacher became a friend of mine. And they ended up losing their space. And my mom's boyfriend said, "Why don't you teach in our loft?" Because she lived, you know, my mom and her boyfriend lived together with yeah. me. So they built a stage in our living room in uh, 
uh, on Hudson and 13th Street, actually, Gainsford. And, um, and that was an acting school. And I wasn't even thinking of being an actor. But yeah. then since I had all these actors in my house, I was like, well, I want to study. This looks cool. And uh, I hated school, but I loved plays and I loved learning monologues and I liked being in front of people. And so, so when you kind of got into it, did you feel that like kinetic higher calling of like, oh man, there's, there's something about this? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, I mean, I started taking the classes with this guy, Dan Fossey, who was the acting teacher. Actually, there was a guy in our class named uh, Ted Danson, who at the time was screen testing for a show called Cheers. <laughs> and, and he got the part and he was kind of the first famous person that I had ever met. Um, and uh, yeah, so then I was like, this is amazing and started reading plays and Dan took me under his wing a little bit, the teacher. And um, But I, I, I struggled and I got my first – I did some little plays and then my first movie um, I auditioned for and got – well, I got two of them. One, I was a very, very small role uh, called Baby It's You um, with uh, Matthew Modine and Roseanne Arquette. And the producer was a guy named Griffin Dunn who was also an actor. And I got to meet Griffin and I was 16 and I just watched this actor direct – actor producer and – he became a big inspiration to me. But then my other boy, I got a bigger role was a horror film um, in Buffalo, New York. And I was 16 and I'm, I don't even know what the child rules were, but I guess I went uh, away for the summer acting in this movie and it was produced by these two brothers that were concert promoters named Harvey and Bob Weinstein. And it was their first movie. Wow. And it had Holly Hunter and uh, Jason Alexander from the Seinfeld. Yeah. And, Brian Backer, who won a Tony, and um, uh, Ned Eisenberg, a great actor. And uh, we all did this horror film, and that was my first, like, oh, my God, I got a real job. Yeah. And then I don't – it barely came out. I remember taking my kids, my friends in high school to Times Square to see it. There was like 14 people in the audience. When Times Square was Times Square, 1981. Yeah, real 42nd Street. Yeah, yeah. The Deuce style. That's awesome. And then when you were kind of booking those roles – well, then I really couldn't get another job and I was really struggling and I was working. I dropped out of high school because I was a bike messenger and I was working as a busboy at a, a couple of restaurants. But I had befriended a couple kid actors and one of them, uh, one of them's name was Matthew Broderick. Wow. And Matthew, um, we met when uh, he was 16. So he wasn't famous at it wasn't the time. was before Ferris Bueller. It was then. before Ferris Bueller. But then he was doing a play off Broadway. And he said, I am leaving this play and I think this play may move to Broadway. And he got me an audition and the play was called Torch Song Trilogy. Harvey Firestein. Right. Yeah. And he is completely responsible for me getting that role because he told Harvey about me. I auditioned. I got the job. The play moved to Broadway. Uh, Matthew went on to do a play called Brighton Beach Memoirs. Yeah. And then he actually pushed for me to replace him in that as well. So he was a real homie in that regard. Completely, amazingly supportive, great guy, still friends with him. Um, and then I got Brighton Beach Memoirs and that's how I got Flamingo Kid because Gary Marshall saw me in Brighton Beach Memoirs and cast me in Flamingo Kid uh, off of that. Wow. So, so that's how I got started. But there was like two years there after the burning or a year and a half where I couldn't get a job. And if it weren't for Matthew, I couldn't even really get an agent. Yeah. And then Matthew completely hooked me up. And then when you did the theater, how, how did you enjoy that experience going from films like theater? You know, it's it's such a different art and medium. And well, it's no, I was I was always doing. Oh, like, you were. I started at fourteen doing like plays in a basement. Wow. I did the Christmas Carol. 
I played Harry Cratchit and a kid named Christian Slater, a nine-year-old kid, played Tiny Tim, who's the Christian Slater. Uh, I met Matthew because I was doing The Corn is Green by Emlyn Williams with some friends of his from Walden High School. And Kenny Lonergan was also a friend of Matthew's who I knew then. I've known these guys, you know, I'm 55, so I've known them almost 40 years. True New Yorker, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got my start, and I, I did a lot of theater. Tons of theater. And um, I did tons of theater up until probably 15, 20 years ago. That's amazing. And then after you kind of had the Flamingo Kid, then you started like Short Circuit and those and Mario. Yeah, yeah. but I always did plays continuously. Like I did um, – I, I, I did – I actually started a theater company called Naked Angels um, that Kenny was a writer on and um, – John Robin Bates was a writer on, and uh, Frank Puglesi ran House of Cards at one point, and um, Marissa Tomei was part of the company, and Sarah Jessica and Matthew, um, Rob Morrow, uh, all kinds of amazing people. So we we did a lot of theater. Um, we had a space on 17th Street in the early 90s. Amazing. Yeah. So you had a real company of actors there. Yeah, a real yeah. company. Yeah. But I did like Midsummer Night's Dream at the Public. I did Twelfth Night at the Pub- in the Park. I did, you know, uh, Perfect Connection, Manhattan Theater Club. Um, I did Carousel on Broadway. I mean, I continued. And then I, I starred in a play with Naked Angels with Annabella Sciorra called Shyster that I produced and starred in. And I just got – I didn't get such killed. The play got destroyed and I uh, – it just – I just was like, well, I'm going to take a break. I'm just going to produce and direct and focus on other things. And that was kind of the last time I did a full run of a play. Wow. A while ago. And the producing and the directing calling, was that something you kind of always felt interested in? Or Yeah. Did- well, I produced a lot at Naked Angels. I was the co-artistic director for like five years. Wow. Um, and yeah, and I started a company, a film company called Green Street Films with John Panati. Um and we produced about 14 movies. I didn't really enjoy producing features. Yeah. I actually didn't like it at all. Um, what happened was uh, that one of the movies that we were going to, pr- that we were producing, we were playing around with documentary form. And, um, this guy came in and pitched a documentary to me and he had won the Oscar for this cool movie called One Day in September, which Spielberg eventually based Munich on. Okay. And, um, it was a documentary about the New York cosmos and Pele in New York in the 70s, which I was part of as a young kid. And my partner said, look, man, if this thing doesn't work, you got to make sure you finish it. And and they delivered a real piece of movie. Like it was terrible. And I said, all right, I had to keep my word. So I started to learn about docs through this guy who – John Batsik, who had won the Oscar for One Day in September because – you know, we, we kind of were fighting about the film, but then he's like, you're right. Let's make this great. We teamed up. We made this film called Once in a Lifetime that I loved. I'm very proud of. It's a beautiful movie. You guys should all watch it. It's a documentary. Got into Berlin and won, won some awards. And I've also been addicted to soccer since. But then um, I ended up uh, – somebody saw it and he asked me to do this movie called Crazy Love about this uh, old couple, a documentary about this couple in the Bronx in 1959, Bert Pugash and Linda Pugash. And Bert was a 35, 33-year-old Jewish guy, and he fell in love with his secretary. He was an 18-year-old beautiful girl. And uh, he told her he's going to leave his wife, and they had this crazy love affair, but she never slept with him because she was waiting. And they ended up um, actually uh, sort of 
getting together but not fully. And then he, she found out he lied. He never left his wife. So she left him and he got so crazy jealous that he ended up hiring uh, these guys to put acid in her eye and they blind, threw acid in her eye and blinded wow. her. And uh, anyway, they ended up getting married years later no and it's called crazy love and and uh they were alive uh, linda passed away bird actually called me recently he's amazing he just sent me a picture of him and his new girlfriend um he's like 80 something but anyway we made the movie and it was i recommend it it's called crazy love absolutely we won the independent spirit award and then that's kind of t- then i was just i, I want to just keep making docs i love this form and then i got into the cove yeah talk to me about that because you're you're a diver right yeah so yeah. i was um while I was making Crazy Love, um, I have this really amazing friend who uh, was uh, one of the pioneers of the internet, as we know it. He created Netscape, co-created Netscape, Jim Clark. And Jim um, would invite me on these crazy diving trips. And we he would take me diving and he uh, would come up and he'd be like really depressed. And he'd be like, these corals were all dead. I can't believe it. I was here 20 years ago and these corals were beautiful. And I'm – and – I didn't really understand climate change at the time. I mean, this is not that long ago. This is like 2000. Before Inconvenient Truth. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was before Inconvenient Truth. It was probably yeah. 2005. Okay. 2005. This is the beginning of my understanding of climate change was through these diving. 2006, um, and uh, which was Inconvenient Truth. But um, so he just explained to me about carbon and the air and how it, you know, and how we're burning up the planet. And then he, a few years later, said, look, I'm working with this friend of mine, Louis Sohoyos, on this movie, and maybe you can help out. And that movie ended up being The Cove. Yeah. And so that was the guy who actually coached Flipper on the TV show. No, that was Rick O'Berry. So Louis was filming with him. But that was what The Cove was about, was following Rick O'Berry's kind of trajectory of a guy who started capturing dolphins for dolphin shows and dolphinariums in Florida, you know, being on the boats, going in and actually capturing them, and then training them in in the in the in the shows for the shows and then ended up training flipper because flipper became a show and obviously and and then realized that this is not a life for a dolphin and went on this crusade to save dolphins and still does today yeah for those who have not seen the film it's exceptional and it's heartbreaking and there's a moment in the film where he talks about how he he built this thing up that really i think at the time when he said he was kind of in the business. There was only two dolphinariums in the world. And there were a few. I don't yeah. know how many, but yeah, there weren't many. But and now, now, now Flipper it's a, exploded the, the business. It's a billion-dollar industry, especially with SeaWorld. And then he felt uh, there a really sad moment, not to give it away, but where the dolphin that played to Flipper committed suicide in his arms because for dolphins, breathing is a conscious effort, whereas with humans, we do it in our sleep. It's not something we think about. And he knew he had to get out. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious, like – on that film, did you know about what was going on in Japan with all? No, no. And actually, when when Louis asked me to join the film, the film was only partially about that. That wasn't the main thrust of the film. The film didn't know what it wanted to be. The film was dealing quite a bit with mercury poisoning and um, the fact that there's so much mercury in what we eat and how it's just going to get worse unless we do something about it. And it was dealing quite a bit with coral bleaching. Yeah. And then we made it. You know, when I got involved with Mark Monroe, a writer friend of mine, we just kind of fo- focused it all on Rick and that story and turned it into that story. But, you know, Louis a ballsy dude and all those guys who went in there, the Cove. I did not go into the Cove, but they did in there just, 
you know, that was crazy, crazy time, but it was so good that they documented it. And now they've really, you know, unfortunately, the J- Japanese have just started wailing again. Not, they've been, st- the, the dolphin slaughters have gone way down. Tremendously, tremendously cut. Because of that film. And, I think the film yeah. and the pressure, but now they're wailing again. Uh, They've uh, they've made even wailing. the IWC is not cracking. No, down. the IWC is a bit weak, um, as we show in the film. Yeah, but, totally. There's a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, where a lot of these institutions that are designed to protect the very thing are the ones that hurt it the most. And yeah, that was a really interesting part. So I'm curious. After having that success, then did you feel like a yearning to to go into directing another documentary after that? Yeah, and that's yeah. when Mission Blue happened. Yeah, Mission Blue called and. I still wanted to make features as a director, um, but you know they're so hard to get off the ground. And uh, I just had this niche, and I, I have to say I've always loved traveling, and I uh, it's been my kind of passion. And when I did my first documentary, and I had to go to Berlin to interview Franz Beckenbauer, and you know go to Holland meet Johan Cruyff and these great football players, I was like, what a life! This is cool. Yeah. Um, I don't have to deal with actors and lawyers, um, <laughs> which I'm dealing with Egos, now. Yeah. No, I love yeah, actors, yeah, man. I, I, I am an yeah, actor, yeah. but but getting, you're a great one. but getting them to do a movie is not easy. Yeah. But, you know. Um, so uh, anyway, I just fell in love with the form, and I and then I realized I can make political statements much easier with documentary, and uh, <clears throat> I can enlighten people much easier without sounding preachy if I could because the idea with the cove was to make it like a feature film and and crazy love kind of unfolds like a feature film and hopefully most of the films I do Mission Blue was different because that was a commission and I first was By not National Geographic right No Ooh. it was it was a it was just a philanthropist Got it and I did not want to direct it originally was not directing it and it just we hired someone that just had a great intention, but just we realized didn't know how to direct. And uh, so, for those who haven't seen the <laughs> film, it chronicles your relationship with like one of the foremost oceanographers in the world, if not, I would dare say, a pioneer of yeah. that. Particularly a, a woman, you know, yeah. that it didn't that didn't really exist in that industry. Sylvia Alice Earle, yeah. And you guys became friends through a diving trip, correct? No, we didn't become friends. We we kind of, I guess, we first met on a diving trip because I was filming her on the Galapagos. In the Galapagos, yeah, on the diving trip, but we were commissioned. Um, I'd read about her and knew about her because of she's kind of a legend. She's kind of like the living Jacques Cousteau. She's the closest thing we have to Jacques Cousteau, I yeah. think, and was a friend of Jacques Cousteau's and dove with Jacques Cousteau. She's eighty-two or something. I was producing, and uh, I'd like to shoot myself. I used to be filming myself when we use these SLR cameras now. I'm old and my neck hurts, but um, <clears throat> I don't film as much. But the uh, she's a, she's amazing, but very difficult to crack. She's uh, been on camera quite a bit, but not ever talking about her personal life. She had a quite a colorful personal life. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to make a personal movie about her, and I thought that was the only way to actually make it effective. So you can tell people about how we're destroying the oceans, but you can do it by making it personal and getting personal with her. She didn't like that. Yeah. But I, we did it. Yeah. And it was a beautiful film and it's heartbreaking. And there's so much I didn't know, you know, particularly about how little much – 5% of the ocean is actually mapped and explored to this day. It's not um, – More less, than that, yeah. but but protected, it's 0.8% wow. uh, where there's no drilling, mining or uh, 
overfishing is allowed or big fishing, commercial fishing. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much is mapped anymore. Uh, at the time, though, you're right. It was very little. But but Google has mapped quite a bit. That movie is five years old now. Yeah. So maybe six years old. So um, also three and a half percent of the ocean is now protected, which is really good Yeah, since that movie, um, partially because of Sylvia and a lot because of this amazing man that was in a, my next film or my film after that, Before the Flood, a man named yeah. Enrique Sala, <clears throat> who has been really in, instrumental in, in protecting the oceans as well. But the the thing about Sylvia is she just was like really mad at me when she saw the movie and she didn't speak to me for a bit because – <clears throat> I spoke to one of her ex-husbands and, you know, yeah. I did some, you know, personal work. Yeah, yeah. We did the work. But in the end, I think she was quite happy. And it was the third original film Netflix ever bought. Wow. Um, documentary. So I love Netflix and I still work with them all the time. Yeah. So. And, and you continued that partnership with Before the Flood. Mm-mm. Before the Flood was Nat Geo. Nat Geo. Okay. That's where I got them mixed up. I apologize. That's all right. So, so Before the Flood, I'd really love to talk about that one because that's a really heavy film, particularly with – the context and the messaging of, of what's going on with climate change. How uh, you and Leonardo DiCaprio have been friends for a while, I imagine. Well, that same trip, uh, I, I didn't know Leo very well, but we've known each other as acquaintances. And I played basketball with him over the years in LA because he always had this famous basketball game in his house. It was really fun. He's a pretty good ball player. Was um, we when I uh, started uh, filming Sylvia in the Galapagos, <clears throat> Leo was on the trip, and. Uh, I had no idea about any of his environmental activism to to that point. I mean, I knew he did a movie, but I, I had no idea about his knowledge. We were on a boat for nine or ten days, so we got to know each other much better, much deeper. Yeah. Actually, we're dive buddies with Sylvia on a bunch of the dives, and I was kind of blown away by his knowledge of back then of what was going on and his interest. Um, and then when the movie was finished, when Mission Blue, we had a screening for John, John Kerry screened it in DC and Leo came. And then he called me like two days later. He's like, yeah, I want to make a movie with you. Let's do this. And, uh, it was the beginning of a beautiful partnership. And, um, I said, well, you better be in it, not narrate it. And he's like, okay, I'm willing to do it. Yeah. Cause he really exposes himself there. And that's not really something he's ever done before yeah. in that way. Yeah. No. And, and and with climate change, you said you were first kind of exposed to it in 2005. And at this point, that film's about 2014 or 2015. We started shooting in 14 and 15, yeah. But what's really terrible, what's really horrible is how <laughs> how much worse things are. Yeah. And how much worse things are now than they even predicted back then. I mean, it's kind of terrifying. There was a scientist named Pierre Sellers, an astronaut, NASA scientist, been to the moon three times. Amazing guy. Dying of cancer while we were shooting. He died six months after it came out. Yeah, I remember that guy. And he, uh, he maps out like what his predictions, and they're not his, they're NASA's predictions of climate change and where we're going and how the planet's heating. And we, are, we have so far exceeded any of that stuff. And it's much worse than we all could have thought. Um, this two degree mark, two degree Celsius mark that the UN is talking about is already happening in certain parts of the world. Talk to me about, I mean, I know, I know it is, and it, it, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but talk to me about messaging as a filmmaker when you handle something so, you know, dark and just filled with that. How, how, how are you able as a filmmaker? Because it, it is really, 
informative and nuanced. And you're able to give a lot of really great information in a really comprehensive and understandable way, even for, uh, you know, in, in layman's terms. Well, that film it. we made, we really wanted that film to be kind of a climate change for dummies movie. In a yeah. way, no offense to anybody, but it was like we wanted people to really – break it down and make it very simple and leo is so accessible and easy to watch so it was great to have a movie star to break it down and to go to these places and you know um, have these incredible characters um in the film we had a great other characters that we we just had to make the film 90 minutes but you know obama says something in the film that i look back at and i'll never forget because it's really upsetting he says you know Leo says, well, what happens if somebody gets into office that doesn't believe in climate change? And Obama goes, you know what, man? It just has a funny way of punching you in the nose. You know, I think whoever gets in office is going to get it. No one, there's no way we could have imagined that this nightmare clown, moron clown, um, could have gotten into office and put into place Everybody from the lobby, all these lobbyists from the coal and and fossil fuel industry in his cabinet, and that's what they all are. What I don't understand is he wanted he 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 ran on draining the swamp, and he's populated his his cabinet and this entire government with swamp monsters. I mean, people that are undermining the institution that they're designed to protect, like Scott Pruitt. You know, Scott Pruitt. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Wheeler's worse. Yeah, the, his the guy who took his place. Um, what what Andrew Wheeler is doing. I don't understand it because I try to – you know what? I wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to think love this morning. I'm going to think love. And it's the climate people that make me the most upset, like these guys. Like, you know, killing the Endangered Species Act just as an excuse so the oil companies could go in and drill and mine in our national parks and in the beautiful parts of our country. I mean, the, the, it's just criminal. And I know we're going to look back on these times as these the black plague yeah. that has taken over. But – well, you even talk in, in Before the Flood about the Paris Accord and the agreement and then, you know, this pulls out of the thing that the entire world agrees is yeah. the most imperative thing yeah. to continue Earth's existence. Yeah. Well, and, anyway, the, this, is a, this, is, this is the problem. So, so I get very angry. I have young kids who I love more than anything in the world. And I'm just thinking, you know, yet, you know, Trump announced or they said, oh, he wants to buy Greenland. Of course he wants to buy Greenland because the planet is warming and Greenland is now going to be a place that they can start to drill and mine. And <laughs> I mean, it's the grand plan. It's almost like they want to warm the planet so that they can get more minerals and more uh, fossil fuels out of the earth. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's, it's scary. I don't understand how America is putting up with this, but they are. I mean, I, I try my best. Um, the next step is just taking to the streets, you know, like they're doing in London with Extinction Rebellion, which is a great organization that I really implore everyone to look into. Um, and I think we need to start taking to the streets. The thing is that in England, the cops don't bash you over the head with the billy club and spray stuff in your face. Um, here, it's a bit more difficult to protest, um, and, and, you know, to shut things down. But let's see. I don't know. I and, and a little bit before the flood, you uh, you did your first big feature with tons of movie stars. Speak of the devil, like we were talking about earlier, stand up guys, right? Yeah. How how was that experience going and directing from you know documentaries? Well, it was it was fun, but it was different. I mean, I, Al Pacino has been an old friend of mine for years. I love him. He's not only like one of my favorite actors; he's like one of my favorite people. Yeah. Um, that was a difficult experience in a way because. 
when I make documentaries, I kind of am the boss. Yeah. So I can kind of like do what I want to do when I want to do in the edit. And, and um, you know, or I collaborate with someone like Leo, you know, to a certain extent, I you know, he trusts me. And then, you know, he'll come in and collaborate with me. This was a work for hire job. It was really fun, but I didn't have full creative control. Yeah. Final, yeah. It was a bit frustrating. You know, I, you know, I edit documentaries for months. You know, I had six weeks to edit the movie. I mean, it was just a very different experience. Yeah. Um, so it was, oh, it was good. I, I loved everybody. It was a great experience, but it wasn't like a fully, I wouldn't say, with the exception of working with Al and Chris Walken and Arkin and Juliana Margulies, um, that was the, Best part for me was yeah. working with these major, amazing actors. I'd say the rest of it was not the most creative I've ever processed I had. Um, so it was very different for me because when I make a doc, like I said, it's – You're the auteur. Yeah. yeah. So that wasn't my auteur moment. So yeah. I'm trying to make a movie where I, I have more of an auteur. Uh, my next movie will be more auteur. But it was, yeah. So that's what I'm working on now. That's awesome. And and while those things were going on, you were still acting. You did the night of and vice principals and yeah, yeah. little bits, little bits. Yeah, were and you, I've been. I've, it's been fun. I've been doing this show Succession now. Um, I love Succession. Yeah. Jeremy Strong, Brian Cox, some yeah, of the best. Great, great, yeah, amazing. Adam McKay. Yeah, yeah. How do you have you been having fun? But yeah, you guys was, just wrapped, right? I mean, I did like five episodes. Yeah, it was just a oh my god, this guy Jesse Armstrong and the writers. I mean, he's a mate. I mean, I don't know how he. It's loosely based on the Murdochs, right? I mean, he says the Murdochs, the Redstones, and the Mercers. Got it. Them. Speaking of devils, yeah. I mean, um, all of them. But uh, I don't know the Redstones, but the Mercers and the Murdochs. I mean, yeah, it doesn't get much worse than the Mercers. As as a, as an artist, do you go back to these acting projects to stay fulfilled? Can you? Or do you... yeah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I just get really lucky. Well, when I'm acting, I seem to really be working with uh, amazing talent. Um, you know, Steve Zalian, Night of, Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, Vice Principals, Jesse, Mark Mylod, Succession. I mean, those guys are like amazing. But you're amazing. I no, mean, you, you build I, up such a filmography. I'm and just you're... lucky, you know. Um, I think part of the reason I stopped acting full time was I, I only wanted to work with really good people and I yeah. wasn't getting that opportunity. And so I thought, let me make a living doing other things that I love. And then if I can get an opportunity to work with these brilliant guys and girls, then uh, I get to do that. And so fortunately, now that I've been focused on documentary mostly and that kind of thing, when I do act, I get to pick and choose. And <laughs> I've just been really lucky that these People have said, Fisher, will you be in our show? And uh, yeah, I got to work with Christine Baranski and The Good Fight. I mean, The Good Fight is – that show is amazing. David Duchovny, Californication. Yeah. yeah. What a fun show. I just worked with Kathleen Turner and she was telling me a funny story about – she was so incredible in the one season she did, but she would get the script and she would go over to the writer and be like, uh, what does a stand-up 69 mean? And then they'd be like, uh, well, that is when you, uh, she didn't and then, know. <laughs> and then she would just be so red in the face, but oh, wow. well, that's awesome. So then you have a film coming out at Toronto, right? Yeah, yeah. So then Leo, um, after before the flood, Leo asked me, uh, to come meet him in Brooklyn at this race, this makeshift racetrack, um, where they were going to race electric cars. And I'm like, okay. So I go and meet him and it's, called Formula E and I never 
I never heard of it. I never heard of Formula E. And, and he's like, yo, man, we should make a doc about this. And I'm like, why? He's like, we can make an environmental doc without really being environmental up front, but we get under. And I'm like, okay. So we, I, I don't know. I was not really into it. And then he introduced me to the guy that created it and he was a character and they flew me, uh, to Valencia, Spain to watch them test the cars. I, I, I watched the race. I was like, okay. I, I didn't quite get it. Yeah. And then, um, but I thought it was interesting and I love that the cars were carbon for, you know, they were, they were electric. Um, so I called a friend of mine, Malcolm Venville, who's a huge commercial director who directed me in a movie called Henry's Crime with Keanu Reeves, who knows a lot about cars. Yeah. And he knows a lot about filming cars because he's a big commercial director. And he came with me to Valencia and we met all these drivers and they were like a trip. And we met Alejandro, the guy who created it. And I said, hey, Malcolm, why don't we do this together? You know, Leo produce it. We'll direct it. And we spent a year following the tour, the circuit. So they race around the world. And it's huge in Europe, much bigger in Europe and in Asia than it is in the U.S. Because the U.S. doesn't follow Formula One. Yeah. These are ex-Formula One and, and some of them drive Le Mans, which is a 24-hour race. goes through the night. So second biggest. There's Formula One. There's Le Mans in Europe. Indy's a big race, Indy, IndyCar. But compared to – you like know, NASCAR or something. Yeah, but yeah, yeah that's U.S. Yeah, based. Right, so, right. so this is worldwide. This right. is Asia, Africa. You know, they race in Asia, Africa. They race in Europe, all over Europe. And the brands are Mercedes. In, in uh, Formula One, it's obviously Mercedes and McLaren. So th this time, now they got Audi, they got BMW, Mercedes and Porsche are joining next year. This thing is blowing up. And we basically, we went around and we recorded. They build tracks in the biggest cities, Paris, Rome. And they race and it's an amazing thing. And we made a kind of sport, fun, environmental film. The guys are all like movie stars, the race car drivers. Alejandro's this really beautiful character, spirit who created the whole thing. And it's kind of like an underhanded environmental film done through the language of sport. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, we're premiering in Toronto uh, on the 8th. On the 8th. Amazing. So just a few weeks away. Yeah. And when you're doing these docs, it seems to be a common thread here that is, is it – a personality that really is like, okay, we have something here before you sign on to do it. Yeah, it's character driven. Yeah. Like everything has to be about the characters um, or it's just never going to, you know, for me, it's just not interesting. If it's if it's about a subject, I mean, that was the thing with Mission Blue that was tricky is because Sylvia is a great character, but could I get it out of her? Right. But like Crazy Love, when you see Bert and Linda, like amazing characters, you know, um, The Cove, Rico Berry, all about character, you know. Ginger Baker, Ginger Baker, great character. You know, every movie that I try to do that – or the ones that work certainly are really f focused on a character. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any other docs currently that you're thinking about putting together? I'm uh, exec producing a six-part series that's pretty wild about private zoos in America, people wow. who own zoos. And again, it's all character-driven, uh, mostly in the southern part of America. Florida, Oklahoma. Wow. And these zoo owners that kind of go to war with each other. Wow. 
So uh, it hasn't been announced, but we're, yeah, it's six to about six episodes. It's going to be pretty wild. That's amazing. Mm. And then acting wise, you, you got Edward Norton's film coming out, right? Yeah, I have yeah. a little, but it's a great, again, lucky, right? Edward asked me to do this little part, but it was fun. So much fun. So much fun. And, wa- and watching him act and direct, and, you know, he's a master. So, uh, yeah, that was really uh, a great experience. And uh, that movie's really cool. That's awesome. And then I'm curious, both as a filmmaker and as an actor, in, in the time now that we live in, we live in a content bubble, you know, before Facebook and Apple and those things were not doing original content. But now anybody that has a little bit or, you know, private equity monies, Facebook's doing original content. Do you think it's easier for filmmakers now to get documentaries and stories told? Or do you think the market's so saturated, there's just so much out there and, and, it, and it gets lost? Both. I think it's easier to make your 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 show, but I think it's harder to get it, get attention. Yeah. Um, it is very saturated. I mean, the good news is I wanted to do another climate change film with Leo, like just like a follow produce up. It. Yeah. But yeah. not be in it. Just like kind of sponsor some. And we, we, we looked into all these stories and it, everybody was already being filmed. It was crazy. So that's great. Yeah. Now, will they be good and will they make noise? That's the next question. You know, you want stuff to be great. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot more talent because there's a lot more opportunity and I think people are getting more uh, learning because, yeah. you know, it, it takes time to be good and people are getting chances to be good. So that's that's the upside. The downside is it's, you know, there's so many movies that come out on Netflix that you and I never even heard of. Of course. Now, maybe they're not that good. Yeah. But there's some great stuff that I've never even heard of, I'm yeah. sure. So that's tricky. And as an actor, do you find in this kind of uh, commercial-ridden time we're in with like, oh, no, I don't I don't, want to talk shit. I understand there's room for it. But like Marvel and these like superhero films or these reboots, like for example, you know, Short Circuit, I hear they're trying to reboot that. Is 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 this a time where you feel like we're, we're witnessing the death of art and it's just going to be branded franchises? And No, I think art is flourishing um, because there's just more opportunity to make it. Uh, but the movie business, movies that going into a cinema is not flourishing. I mean, then it's – if you look at the top 10 movies every week, it's Toy Story and yeah. Marvel and um, The Rock and yeah. Jason Statham. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. Um, but that's okay. Then you still have like these little movies that do well. I mean, and certainly for documentaries, I mean, this was the huge year, the last two years for documentaries between – you know, in the cinemas, like um, the biggest little farm, little movie made <coughs> almost five million dollars at the box office. Yeah, documentary. You know, RBG, Mister Rogers, those things made a lot of money at the box office. Yeah, like Searching for Sugar Man was a big one too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's really, that's really. Unfortunately, none of my films have done very well at the box office in the doc world, but they've done very well on the, TV. Yeah. Very yeah. well on TV. And and is that something now tactically you change when you do a doc distribution wise? Do you do you still like I know everyone kind of as a filmmaker wants to have that theatrical run because the theatrical experience is one of the most sacred, you know yeah. of all time. But do you now think that might be a the end of this? Or- no, I don't know. I don't think so. He's still push. You know, like I had the guy that mixed uh, Skip Levesey, who 
who won the Oscar for mixing Gravity and he mixed uh, Roma and he mixes all the Coen brothers. He mixed my my race movie. Oh, amazing. And, and Ren Kleiss, uh, who mixed Star Wars, did the sounds in the car for me. You know, I mean, with Skip, you know, it's it, uh, these guys are so generous, A. Um, and B, I want everyone to see my movies in a the movie theater because yeah. it's just a much better experience. Of course. The content controls you versus you controlling the content. You know, you have to show up at a time. If you go to the bathroom, you miss a moment. And I think there's something about that, you know, that no matter – even if it, it, it's an amazing film on Netflix, you just – you digest it differently. And I think that's an imperative experience for a film because it controls you versus you controlling it. Yeah. No, it's true. But it's not easy to get people to go. Even, yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to go. Are you any interest in returning back to the theater? Because I know you've done Shakespeare and the. Yeah, I'd <laughs> like to. Yeah, now that I have kids and maybe want to stick in New York some more, stay in New York. Do you, or, you or balance between both coasts? No, no. You, you so you're New York. Yeah, I, I love that. I rarely go to L.A. I mean, I go more to Europe. Thank oh, you. I love Europe. I'd like to bounce between London and New York more, but um, yeah, I I, w- I would love to do a play. Love it. My dream, and because Ray Fiennes is one of my best friends, and. He's like one of my favorite actors and I, I've been kind of saying like, Rafe, let's do something together, please. When I, you know, when I'm ready, I need you to buoy me up. <laughs> well, speaking of staying buoy during these like, you know, dark times with Trump and all of his horrible disciples, how, what's keeping you inspired? You know, what's keeping you focused and, and to keep going? Because I think, I think a lot of us, you know, that are, uh, that are humans and compassionate, we're we're struggling, you know, with, with everything going on. Every time you wake up to a news article, it's like the onion. So as an artist and as a man, as a father, what, what things are keeping you inspired right now? Well, you know, I have to say what's interesting is what this is. I've always been in my mind, this very open-minded kind of liberal kind of, uh, non-racist human being and i tell you what trump has done in a good way for me is he's really made me realize that i don't know anything about race and that i don't know anything about what it's like to be a non-white person really and and the one thing that i've been really digging deep is he's opened up a lot of questions uh for me as a human uh exploring my own naivete and um, in a way, uh, I'm grateful to that. And that's made me more creative and exploring more options of what films to make. You know, I always knew I was a white privileged person, but I never knew how much of a white privileged person I was or any of us are um, until really Trump has woken that up in my my life, in our lives. Um, and, you know, so... There's that. There's the. There's um. He's inspired, you know, a bunch of friends of mine, Mark Ruffalo and Bruce Cohen, who produced American Beauty, and Rebecca Chaiklin, who's a producer, and Julia Walsh, who's an activist who helped Ruffalo stop fracking in New York. We started a thing called We Stand United that Dean's been really generous with helping getting the word out. Uh, we started that when Trump was elected, and we've made a lot of videos, and we've done a lot of um, things about the injustice and uh we made some campaign videos during the 2018 so that's been kind of i I get off on doing that kind of stuff um i'm gonna make a a mitch mcconnell film like a short that i'm trying to raise money for now that i want to 
get out for Kentucky. I have a three o'clock call with people in Kentucky about that. So, I mean, that kind of stuff, it, it gets me going, right? Yeah. So, so in that sense, but, um, yeah. And my, the feature film I've been trying to make for years is dealing with kind of injustice and acceptance of, uh, people who are different, you know? So, just keep pushing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'm so grateful for your time, Fisher. And, and it, thank you for everything that you're doing, you know, both as a, as an artist, as an activist, as an actor. I mean, you're really doing exceptional work and trying, man, yeah, trying, believe it, me. It means a lot to me. And usually we talk about what's next for you, but what, what's a good way for people to stay in contact with you, you know, through social media and what, what's going on with your films? Do you have social media? I do, but I don't really, I tweet a little bit. Dean, Dean should probably help me with that. But, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, but I rarely tweet. And they're, you, my my latest thing is this guy William Barr. He his father, you know, was the headmaster at Dalton who hired Jeffrey Epstein to be the teacher, which is so interesting. No way. Yeah, um, sounds like a doc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he's. I think William Barr is going to go down in history as one of the one of the people who destroyed our democracy. Also, because he's an enable. He's the worst enabler. I, it's just it's bizarre to me. Um, any, any chance, I know you have kids, but any chance one day you might make a run for office? No, because why? Yeah. I mean, I'd like, I, I do like making speeches and I do give stump speeches for people, but, um, you I have just, a lot of foundations that you work with. No, I work sometimes with environmental groups mostly. Got um, it. but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I should probably get more social media savvy, but I don't, it's not, I like to just make my movies and then have people see them but yeah i guess social media helps people see them but i'm just disorganized well you're an artist <laughs> I'm, a dis <laughs> I'm a bit of a mess i actually rode my vespa uh to work today and uh i got up in the office and i'm looking at the rough cut of one of the shows and i'm like where are my keys oh they're in my vespa and i had to run downstairs and thank god no one stole it but oh man <laughs> <laughs> and that's not old age. That's how I've been since I was little. That's not at Alzheimer's. And you're still doing it under the banner of Green Street? No, oh. no, that's gone. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I have a company now called Bloomfish. My wife is Alexis Bloom, girlfriend, wife. Um, we made this movie about Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds called Bright Lights yeah. uh, for HBO. Together we directed it. And uh, – She's great filmmaker. She just made the film on Roger Ailes and is nominated for an Emmy this year. Oh, congratulations. So she'll win. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I work with her and I'm working a, quite a bit now with Chris Smith who just did the Fire Festival doc on Netflix and um, did one of my favorite movies called American Movie Documentary and did the Jim Carrey documentary and he's great. So, no, I'm just kind of rolling with it, you that, know. That's great. Awesome. Well, Fisher, Stevens, thank you so much for your time. My it means a lot to me, and it was a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Dino? Thank you so much. Hi. Trim that beard, bro. Like me. <laughs> All right. See ya. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.